Hello, and welcome to the Living Word Pensacola podcast. Here you will find teaching from our weekly services where we focus on developing a Christ-centered life. We are delighted you have chosen to spend time with us today, and we know today's message has the power to help you grow with your faith journey. So, let's turn our hearts and our minds to God's Word as we begin today's episode. We are continuing our series on prayer. This is week four, and we'll keep going until God says to move on to something else. But our prayer that we are considering our base prayer is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for the saints. We've taught about how Jesus taught us how to pray. We've talked about the prayer of faith with prayer of agreement. We actually talked about this last week from Matthew 18. Two or three are gathered in my name. I am there in their presence. And that's the scripture we were talking about last week. We talked about corporate prayer, talking about the disciples gathering in the New Testament together. Um, but we, we took the end of service last week to talk about vision and future for what God has for us and the things that we were standing in faith and believing God for because we know according to Hebrews, right, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That's Hebrews 11.1, 1, right, is the inner assurance that those things that we hope for, which that word hope is confident expectation, which is why I asked when you came in this morning, did you expect 50 people? Because we set our, our, our faith out there for 50 people to be coming into the church, to joining what's going on here, to be reaching out, whether they were people looking for a church to reach out in the community, people that just needed Jesus, right? A, a, a variety of people to be coming in to grow the church, right? Because we know that faith is the substance of what we are confidently expecting right? It is the inner assurance or title deed, knowing that those things are ours. We have ownership of them. We can claim them by faith, even though we cannot see them with our natural eyes, because we are not led by what we see, right? We are not led by what we see. We're led by faith. We are led by what we know, okay? So that faith, our faith is giving substance to the people that we have asked for. That's how faith works, and we took our slides last week. Dave, you can throw them back up there again. And we said we want to start with reaching 50 new people. And that's more important than anything else. We did the next few slides. We talk about a building because once we get 50 people, we're going to need a little bit different building. And we're going to need to stand in faith that this building doesn't fall through the floor and every other places if there's 50 people in here, right? A little faith required there. Lord, don't let anybody get hurt coming to church, right? Amen. But we need to put our faith on something. We can't just show up every weekend and just be happy listening to the word of God without putting our faith on something. Your faith as a believer should be on something. There should be something you're believing God for. And when that comes in and when you see the reward of your standing in faith, it grows your faith for something else. Faith is something that never stops. There should always be something you're hoping for. That confident expectation is how God made us. There's always something we are hoping for. 
Now, your faith can be in different areas, right? Your faith can be in, okay, God, I need to pay this bill. Your faith can be in, okay, God, I want to be able to have spiritual discernment. I want to be able to have the gift of prophecy. You can have your faith for spiritual things, right? The Bible says covet earnestly these things, right? Your faith can also be for for natural things. I I have faith out there for healing. I need to be healed in my body because something's going on. I I have faith for wisdom because I need to make a decision. I need to know what this, I need to have the mind of Christ to know what to make this, you know, how to make this decision. Faith is applied to all areas of our life, which is why it says in Hebrews 11, 6, without faith, it's impossible to please him. Because faith is how he made us, because faith is how God is, because we're made in his image, right? When he stood in the beginning of time and spoke light be, that was faith. That was faith. And he knew that when he said that, it was going to happen. He did not doubt. He did not waver, right? We're learning our faith is not the same as God's faith. It's the same kind of faith, but stuff doesn't instantly happen like that. And as we go and grow in faith, things will begin to happen like that. But we know that our faith is giving substance to the 50 people that we ask for. And every Sunday when we show up to church, we are in confident expectation that the things that we hope for exist, even though the previous Sunday we did not see them. That's how faith works. That's what our faith for this church is, right? We're not believing for 50 people for any other reason than God said, go ye therefore into the world and make disciples. That's what he told us to do. We are following the Great Commission with what God told us to do. Now, the next slide talks about the, the building we want. We want a building that's two to three times the size that we have, a sanctuary that seats at least 100 people, right? We need, if we have 50, we want room to grow. But I don't want to believe God for a sanctuary that seats 5,000 people if I have 50 people coming, right? But there's times where you will say, okay, God, I don't have a car, and I want to believe God for a 2,000 or a 2022 Cadillac DeVille with less than 50 miles with leather interior, right? When God's saying, how about you believe for something that runs, right? (laughs) But see, people get ahead of their faith level and then get frustrated when stuff doesn't come in or they get the Cadillac they thought they wanted, then they realize, I can't afford the insurance on this. Right? Do you have, and then something breaks, and then something breaks, and you're like, I don't know how much it costs to fix a Mini Cooper. Do you know how expensive it is to repair these really expensive cars? Right? Because you you set your faith on something that you're not at the same level to receive. Right? I love this. I was listening to a minister this week that talked about this. He said the problem with most people is they set their faith on something, then they wonder why it doesn't happen. They turn around, and blame God, or say faith doesn't work. When in all reality. God is actually sparing them. You know, there's that waiting period between the time that you asked God for something, right? Can I use you an example? You ask God for business, right? And God says, okay, we're gonna stand in faith for something to come to pass. Was it instantaneous? No. Did it look like it for a while there might not ever happen, the prices of real estate and all this stuff? But what's happening in the process from the time the request was made until the time the gift was brought? growth not the same person see God's saying okay if you want this then I need you to be this person right now you are this person right there's times where our faith takes a little bit of time because we're not the maturity level we need to be to receive the gift that God has for us 
Because if we receive the gift he has for us at a lower level of maturity, we won't know what to do with the gift, right? It's like the lottery theory. Everybody heard the lottery theory. You win the lottery and it's an amplifier. If you were a great person that was great with money before you won the lottery, it's great. But 96% of people that win the lottery in five years are in worse shape than before. They win millions of dollars and then it just drives them in debt. Why? Because they weren't great with money beforehand. It, the money doesn't change the person. It amplifies who they are. They end up with all this lavish stuff and then in worse debt than they ever started with and it destroys their life. There's times where God's saying, you're asking for something good, right? I could be, I could be, 20 years old saying God send me a wife I was 20 years old saying God send me a wife and I didn't get married till I was 25 you know why because I wasn't ready for the wife God was sending me when I was 20 see we ask for God to send us blessings are we willing to grow in faith to receive the blessing he has for us so that we're ready for it so that the blessing doesn't destroy us See, the blessing God could take you out if you're not ready for it, but it requires you to walk by faith. And he's saying every day that you're walking with me, you're growing, you're growing, your faith is growing, the, the, the blessing is coming, the thing you've asked for is coming. Are you ready to receive? Are you sure you're ready for what you're asking for? Which is why we're not asking God for a 5,000 seat sanctuary, right? We're asking for God for something that's reasonable. I've seen this happen a lot of times where pastors will go out and build these massive sanctuaries. They'll have a congregation of five, 600 people and they build a 2,000 seat auditorium and the church dies, kills the church. Because people come in, they see all these empty seats and their faith just diminishes because they're looking at what this visible, and although he might want all those people, it's the faith of the people that come together Right, that unit that we talked about last week, that corporate unity is crucially important. It's not my faith alone that will see this church grow. It's all of us. But the other crucial thing that the Lord showed me this week, Azusa Street Revival, the Brownsville Revival right here in Pensacola, right? All the big moves of God. If you go back over the last hundred years and you look at any big move of God that broke out, you know where it started? Usually less than 10 people in some back room on their face praying every single time here in Brownsville because I've heard Rodney I've heard the stories told about the Brownsville revival it was four old ladies in a prayer room prayed in the revival that happened here in Pensacola Azusa Street it was five or six people in a back room praying crying out to God our prayers our requests our faith is what's going to spark revival and change in this place See, and I refuse to do what most churches do. I wasn't going to go here, but I'm going to go here anyway, right? Most churches nowadays, they get started, and what do they do? They go and try to take the world's way of doing things to grow their church, right? They say, okay, I'm going to step out here, and I'm going to promote everything I can on social media, right? I'm going to have a Facebook account, a Twitter account, and I'm going to live stream our services, and I'm going to do all this what? That's all the world's way of doing stuff, trying to grow their church that way, right? And then they see an influx of numbers, and what comes with the influx of numbers? A bunch of problems, a bunch of issues, and they weren't ready for what they got because they weren't mature enough in the first place to recognize, I have to grow this God's way, not the world's way. And then if people get hurt, right? We heard recently of churches where pastors are stealing money and they're misleading their sheep and places are closing and people are getting hurt what happens through all of that we end up with a bunch of hurt sheep that blame God they blame God instead of saying you do you know what grew the church in the new testament signs and wonders following and miracles happening 
I'd rather have a church where miracles are happening and people hear about the miracles and be like, I got to go to that place because there's change happening in that place. Do you know why change happens in that place? Because they spent time in the upper room praying and waiting on God. They waited on God. And then he came down when they, when they were, the blessing would not destroy them, but instead expanded by 3,000 people that got saved when it fell in the upper room. Are we ready for what God wants to do? See, I'm believing and saying, God, well, I want prophetic words. We want miracles and healings in our church. I'd rather that be what they see on the outside than some face that's put on Facebook, some something that's put on social media trying to draw and lure people in. I don't have time for all that. I'm time for all that. I'm, do, I'm done with doing things the world's way. I want to do things God's way. I don't want a fake semblance of glory. I want the real thing. I want the real thing. I want what God has. But you know how that's going to come? Time on your face in the presence of God, crying out for the people of Pensacola. The more I do it, the more my heart goes out to the people of this community. The more my heart burns and yearns for the people that live in Pensacola. Today we're going to talk about the prayer of consecration and dedication. And I want to start this out today with a little bit of a story. So, so Tiffany and I, we got married back in California and we were youth pastors at Faith Family Church out there. We had great senior pastors. They were wonderful. We loved them very much. They taught us how to be husband and wife and helped us out tremendously. Came back to Illinois because we knew God was sending us there without a position. We didn't actually have a position at Living Word when we first came back. Uh, Pastor Doug said, we don't really have a position for you here. And I said, well, God sent him anyway, so we're just going to come and plug in. And little we know that was going to be everything we did at Living Word. We just plugged in. There was a hole. We filled it. But one of the biggest things that we did within six months of being there, we became the youth pastors and, uh, of junior high and then eventually senior high as the junior high youth pastor went up as associate pastor. And we loved youth ministry. I love youth. We were the crazy ones. We did an all night New Year's Eve party every year at our house. New Year's Eve, we would stay up all night long. I'll never forget, Ann Brock were about five the first year that we let them stay up with all of these teenagers who were you know, doing wild and crazy things. And Pastor Paul's the ones like, yeah, you want to bring your drum set and your guitars and rock out with praise and worship in my living room? Sure, go ahead. And then, and then Pastor Paul got stuck at work and I wasn't even there. And Miss Tiffany was stuck with this loud band playing in our house. And, you know, I'm showing up at 11 o'clock at night going, oh, did I miss the rock show? You know, and they're all playing and it was loud. But I don't forget the year Aiden and Brock were, were staying, they were five or six, and then we let them go ahead and stay up all night long with the teenagers. It was about five o'clock in the morning, and they were doing everything they could to stay awake, and they were playing uh, Nintendo, and they were playing Mario Brothers, and they're sitting together on the couches playing Mario. And I was kind of walking through the room and seeing them, and some other kids were mingling. His son was starting to come up early in the morning, and I looked up, and I'm like, oh, they're on a level. This is, this is cool, because I used to play Mario when I was a kid, too. You know, I'm watching, and there's a little Mario character running across the screen and jumping and jumping and then running. And I'm like, go ahead and jump, go ahead and jump. Nothing, and just falls off the cliff. Doo, 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 and he dies. And I look down, and they have the controllers in their hand, and they're asleep. They literally fell asleep, and their character died on the screen. And I was all, oh, and we carried him upstairs and put him in bed, and they slept all day. We loved youth ministry. I loved the teenage. You know, the best part about teenagers is they're just real. They can tell you when you're lying to them. You know, they don't need a bunch of fluff. They, they, they're just real. And I love kids that way. They're raw. They are who they are. And our heart was for them. And then we reached a point in time after being in youth ministry for years, after, after starting a summer camp and pouring our heart and soul into summer camp and having so much fine, fun camping with the teenagers out in the woods and then transitioning it over to the new campsite, when we realized God kind of knocked on my heart and said, 
I want you to pastor. I said, I don't want to pastor. I love being a youth pastor, right? And I was annoyed. I remember going to Bible school. I went, when I went to Bible school, I went to Bible school to be a youth pastor. That's what I wanted to do. And I remember those youth pastors like, yeah, I'm just doing this, but like for like two years in youth ministry, just, just to get a little experience because I want to pastor a church. And I'm like, that stinks, man, because you're going to invest in these kids and then walk away from your, ba- I always saw it as they're abandoning the teenagers because I had such a heart for teenagers. And then God starts knocking on my heart saying, I want you to be a pastor. I'm like, I don't want to be a pastor. I love being a youth pastor and I really enjoy this. And I argued with God for months, almost a year saying, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to be a pastor. I said, adults are grumpy. I, I mean, I had legitimate <laughs> arguments with God, right? Teenagers are fun. Adults get grumpy and worried about things. Teenagers just come in and if you got pizza, you're good to go, right? Just give them a little pizza, teenagers are happy, right? You want to have a youth event? Say, hey, we got free pizza and a whole bunch of kids will show up, right? I can't just say, hey, we're having church and there's free pizza, adults don't care, right? But I just love, yeah, I'm on a diet or I'm on whatever, right? Exactly. I loved being youth pastor. And God said, it's time to be a pastor. And I was like, I, I don't want to. I, really, I fought God. What's happening in this process? This is consecration. This is a picture of consecration where God's saying, this is what I have for you next. And I have to walk through a process of saying, okay, not my will, but your will be done. This is consecration. This is what Jesus went through in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is when most people talk about consecration, this is the, that's the scripture they reference where he cried out to the Lord and said, if this cup can pass from me, but not my will, your will be done. See, there's times in your life where you're serving. I, you being a youth pastor is phenomenal. Loved every minute of it. It was called by God. It was, God, it was what God told me to do. And yet I still had to submit my will when God starts shifting and I have to follow along with his will. This happened again when we stepped into being an associate pastor and start helping with the adults and pastoring the adults instead of the teenagers, right, and stepping into a higher leadership call. And then God says, I want you to plant a church. I said, God, I just became an associate pastor. What more do you want from me? You want me to do what? Plant a church? You know, because what's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, my mind, at least, when he says plant a church was, well, if you're planting a church, you're not going to living word anymore. And I love this church. I love being here with Pastor Doug. You know what I realized that I loved more than anything else? No, it's that when, when, when the service was going on, it was Pastor Doug's service, and he was responsible. And I learned that I love that responsibility, right? Because if, if we didn't do what God wanted to do, then I wasn't ultimately responsible, right? I was beginning to realize that this submission process means he's wanting us to take on a higher level of responsibility in the kingdom. And see, a lot of people fight that. They fight it in the natural world. I don't want more responsibility. You can pay me more money, but don't, I don't want more responsibility. You want me to do more for what? People fight responsibility in the kingdom too. But see, as the promotion in the kingdom comes is when you assume the responsibility and then the blessing follows. Blessing doesn't come before the responsibility. You assume the responsibility and then the blessing follows. Okay, God, I'll be responsible for taking care of these people or taking care of this situation. And he sees that you're faithful with that and he brings in the blessing after the fact because of you've assumed responsibility. This is the prayer of consecration. 
And let me show you a little bit of a word picture here. Back in the Old Testament in Joshua 3, Joshua told the people in uh, Joshua 3, 5, consecrate yourselves because the Lord will do wonders amongst you tomorrow. Here's the first thing I want you to recognize. If you're willing to consecrate your life and choose his will over your will, he'll do wonders. He'll do wonders. He'll do wondrous things when you line up with him and what he has as a plan for your life, for the church, for your marriage, for your kids, he'll do wonders. God never has a plan or a will that is gonna be less than what you can think of for yourself. It's always gonna be better. It's gonna be different. But in the long run, when you assume that responsibility, it's going to be better. It's gonna be wonderful. It will be wonderful, okay? Now, the word consecrate in the Old Testament is actually the word kadash, okay? And it means to consecrate, to sanctify, to prepare, to dedicate, to be hallowed, holy, sanctified, or separate, okay? God told us to be separate. He told us to be dedicated to him, to be consecrated to him, okay? The first example of consecration we see, now remember, Old Testament, Old Covenant, covenant with God, right? All the way back to Abraham, when God made a covenant with him, when he walked through the, the cow that was divided in half and they made a covenant with God, right? So now we're on to Moses. God has a covenant with the people and the children of Israel. Moses leads them out of, the, of the, you know, Egypt it, towards the promised land, okay? They're now in the wilderness. And he tells Moses, build a tabernacle, okay? Remember, Old Testament picture of New Testament, okay? I'll explain in a minute. He tells them, we're gonna to go to Exodus chapter 40. In Exodus chapter 40, verse nine, and we will do have all these on the screen. He says, take the anointing oil. Okay, what is the anointing oil? Oil in the Old Testament is representative of the anointing of God in the New Testament. Uh, anointing oil is actually representative of anointing. Um, they would oftentimes pour it. It was not something that was just dabbed on. You see a lot of times they just put a little dab on your forehead. Some people want to anoint you with oil. In the Old Testament, they took the oil, they poured it on the top of your head. It would run over your head, through your beard, and be dripping off. And there's a representation of this in the New Testament where Jesus is the head of the church, that anointing coming from the head dripping down the beard to the body. That's a picture of our New Testament church, but that's for a different day. Now, take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and everything with it. Consecrate it. So he says, this is the tabernacle. And he told him exactly how to build it. It needs to be a tent. It needs to be this wide by this deep. It needs to have the Holy of Holies. You put the top on it. He, he walked them through. Take the Ark of the Covenant. Put the Ark of the Covenant in there. Inside the Ark of the Covenant was the stone tablets that had the Ten Commandments that God wrote on Mount Sinai. Put the tablets inside the Ark of the Covenant. Then the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant, which is all pictures of things in the New Testament. I don't want to go into all the depth of that today, but I want to be a broad, big picture. I'm trying to stay as broad as possible, okay? Consecrate it along with the furnishings. So everything in the temple, right? Not just the Holy of Holies, not the Ark of Covenant. Everything in that temple is consecrated, okay? Keep that in mind. So that it will be holy, separate, set apart, dedicated to me, okay? Anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils. Consecrate the altar so that it will be especially holy, Anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. See, God told him 
we are going to take this, this tent, this tabernacle, and it's going to become anointed. It's going to become full of my glory because we're consecrating it to him, okay? Then in Exodus 40, 12, he says, it's time to consecrate the priests. Priest being the one who is the priest in the tabernacle, okay? There needs to be a priest in a tabernacle, Okay, in Exodus 40, 12, said, bring Aaron with his sons to the entrance of the tent and wash them with water, All right? Do we know what the New Testament picture of water is? It's the word of God, right? Water is the word. Now, it says, wash them with the word of God. Clothe Aaron with holy garments. Put holy garments on your priest. Anoint him, consecrate him so that he can serve me. Okay, this is our Old Testament picture. Then when this happened, it says in Exodus 40, 34, the glory of the Lord. It says, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Okay, by filled the tabernacle, verse 35, Moses was unable to even enter the tent of meeting because the cloud rested on the tent and the glory of the Lord filled it. He couldn't even go in the tent. The Israelites set out wherever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle through the stages of their journey. And if the cloud was not taken up, so in other words, the cloud resided in the tabernacle. If the cloud came out of the tabernacle, they knew it was time to follow the cloud. It's time to move. And they would pack everything up and that cloud would move and they would follow the cloud. In the daytime, it was a cloud with the glory of God. And at nighttime, the fire from inside the cloud could be seen and it was a light. And they were following the glory of God. Okay. And when, they, when that cloud would stop, they would reassemble the tabernacle and that cloud would ascend down on the tabernacle and the glory of God would fill that place where the Ark of the Covenant was, okay? Now, for the cloud of the Lord was a tabernacle by day and there was a fire inside the cloud by night visible to the entire house of Israel throughout the stages of their journey. So this is an Old, Old Testament picture of the tabernacle, the glory of God, the priests and what it took to be a priest and the consecration necessary. Okay, so let's take that picture of consecration and let's, that's now the old, old covenant, Old Testament, and take it to the New Testament. Okay, so what's for today? Because if it's in the Old Testament, it's a picture of what we're supposed to be doing today, right? So if that's the Old Testament, what's the New Testament? All right, so what's the tabernacle in the New Testament? 1 Corinthians six twelve. It's true that our freedom allows us to do anything but that doesn't mean that everything we do is good for us. Remember this, we have freedom in Christ, right? Our salvation sets us free and God has given us free will and we're under a new covenant and there is grace and there is mercy and it's wonderful. But too many Christians abuse it because I can, I will. But he's saying here, your freedom allows you to do anything, but that doesn't mean that everything you do is going to be good for you. Doesn't mean that those things are pulling you away from your salvation, right? Because your salvation is a free gift, but it changes the level of what you can do for him in the kingdom. This is talking about consecration. I'll get there. Now, I am free to do as I choose, but I choose to not be enslaved to anything. Although I'm free, I'm not gonna let something else enslave me. For some people, it might be drugs or smoking, right? I'm addicted to smoking. Anything that you can get addicted to. Food, television, video games, movies. There's a lot of stuff in this world that you can get addicted to. And he's saying, I can do any of those things. 
but I want none of those things to enslave me. This is something I walked through recently where I realized, you know, I'm not a smoker, I don't do drugs, I don't drink, right? But I like to watch a lot of TV. Am I enslaved to that TV? Was I thinking, I can't wait till I park my truck so I can watch the latest episode, right? Am I becoming to where I'm changing my habits and patterns to do something? Because if I am, I'm enslaved to it. If I'm changing my behavior to be able to do something else, it shows a tie or attachment that becomes unhealthy. And he's saying, I'm choosing never to be enslaved to anything, okay? Then he goes into verse 15. I'm skipping a few verses. Verse 15, don't you know that your bodies belong to Christ as his body part? Should one presume to take the members of Christ's bodies and make them members of a harlot? Right? Of course not. Are you, aren't you aware that the fact that anyone sleeps with a prostitute becomes part of that person, right? Because when there is an intimacy level, God says the two become one flesh. It says it right here. For it has been declared the two become a single body, which other translation says two become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is mingled into one spirit with him. That word means, uh, it's actually the Greek verb kalio, which means to unite to weld together is what that means. To join together, to make two into one. See, when you are joining yourself to the Lord, you are one with him now. When you have given yourself, when you become a Christian and you dedicate your life and you begin to make him Lord, you are becoming one with him. Just, he calls us his bride because it's the same picture as a husband and wife. We are now one flesh. He sees us as one. God sees Jesus and the church as one, okay? This is why you must keep running away from sexual immorality. Every other sin that commits is external to the body, but immorality involves sinning against your own body. Have you not forgotten that your body is a sacred temple, verse 19, of the spirit of holiness who lives in you? You don't belong to yourself any longer, but for the gift of God, the Holy Spirit lives inside your sanctuary, which is also the same word for tabernacle. The Holy Spirit, the glory of God, is now living in your tabernacle. You are the tabernacle. You are the tabernacle of God, of the Holy Spirit. That's you, okay? Your body and your soul, the tabernacle. You were God's expensive purchase in verse 20, paid for with tears of blood. So by all means then, use your body to bring glory to God. So your tabernacle, which is your body, needs to be consecrated. Needs to be consecrated, which is why we don't do things that the world does. We don't live the way the world lives. We choose to say, I'm going to get married to this one person and stay married for the rest of my life in covenant and only have that level of intimacy with one person instead of saying, I'm gonna try to become one with everyone that's out there. In Romans 12, verse one, it says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your true worship, because consecration and worship are tied together. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do we consecrate our body? We change our mind. We wash, remember, we washed the priests in the Old Testament, we're gonna wash our mind with the word of God, right? Renew your mind so that you may discern what is the good, the pleasing, and the perfect will of God. Why does he distinguish three types of will? Because a lot of people never get past the good will of God. 
when God says, I've also got a perfect will and a pleasing will, right? There's like stages. What this is showing us is that there are people that have stages of lordship. They allow Lord to come into a little bit of their life and that's the good will of God. And then they're, okay, God, I'm gonna make you Lord over a couple area, other areas of my life and now they're in his pleasing will. And then they say, my whole life is surrendered to you and they endure into his perfect will. Most people never hit the perfect will of God because they still have too much of their own desires and their own self. There's too much of us to hit the perfect will of God. But this is a process. This is a consecration process. Consecration was not something that was done once. Every time the priest entered into the Holy of Holies, there was a cleansing that happened. This consecration is something that we choose to do every day. I wake up in the morning, and the first thing I do is say, Father, today I choose to serve you. Not my will, your will be done. Direct my steps. Let your word be a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. Today I'm going to serve you. I make a choice every morning. Every morning. Because I could just as easily get up tomorrow and say, today I'm going to do what I want to do. It's the same choice. It's the same effort required to make either choice. But it's a consecration. So now we know that our body is the tabernacle, right? So who's the priest? The priest of the tabernacle is our spirit man. It's us. We are the priest, right? We know that in 1 Peter 2, 5. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, okay? We are the priest in our tabernacle filled with the glory of God. That's the pic- We are the picture of the Old Testament tabernacle because he now dwells with us. We don't have to go to the tabernacle. He is in us. We don't have to go visit God. God is no longer in the Holy of Holies, right? How do we know this? Because when Jesus died on the cross, you remember it says that veil was torn from top to bottom. That veil was what separated the Holy of Holies where God's glory resided from everyone else. When that veil was torn, his glory is now supposed to reside in us because we're the tabernacle. But see, most Christians never take the time to consecrate and wonder why the glory doesn't come. If you're missing God in your life, are you ready for God in your life? What happened to Ananias and Sapphira? They had on a false semblance of being looking good on the outside and came in and said, we're ready for the glory of God, and it killed them. See, the glory of God is not something to be trifled with. And there were strict rules of it. In the Old Testament, when they were moving the Ark of the Covenant, and all of a sudden it started to stumble, and the man put his hand on it, and it killed instantly. We need to have a reverence and a holy fear, the Bible says, a holy fear, respect for the glory and the power of God. Are we ready for that in our life? Which is why God says he's so merciful and gracious. We have the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God because there are times we're not ready for his full glory. His full glory would overwhelm us and eventually our bodies could not contain. They would kill us. But he allows us in his great grace and mercy to make him Lord in incremental stages and processes as we grow through our Christianity, slowly surrendering our will to his will as a daily process, as a daily process, as a daily process. I'm gonna jump all the way to verse nine, Dave. You are a chosen generation. 
You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, he is the high priest of our faith, but we are priest. He's the high priest, but we're still priest, which means what did the priests do, right? They got washed with the water. In other words, we need to spend time in the word of God. You need to get in your Bible every day. You need to get in that word and allow that word to wash you of the dirt and junk of this world. But what's the next thing that happened? In verse 13, when you jump all the way back, I don't know if I put this in, Dave, it said, clothe Aaron with holy garments. Remember that? Clothe Aaron with holy garments, anoint him and consecrate him so he may serve me as the priest. Did you know that you need to be clothed as the priest of your tabernacle with holy garments? In Galatians chapter three, verse 24, it says this, the law then was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. But since faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for through faith, we are sons of God. For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. New King James says, for many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. The Passion Translation says, you are covered and clothed with his anointing. New Living says, put on Christ like putting on new clothes. See, when you join the military and you show up, you put on their clothes. And you are recognized by what you are wearing. The clothes that Christ has for you might not always fit. Pastor Doug talked about this at summer camp a few years ago. Right? It's, like a, it's like a little scrawny kid putting on a football jersey of a bigger person. Christ is gonna clothe you in him to what he wants you to be and it's something you grow into. Something you grow into. See, in the military, when they give you these clothes and as you grow in the military and you gain more authority and more structure in the military, the uniform is mostly the same. But there's insignias that change and you begin to recognize clusters and bars and things that, okay, this, is, this guy's got some rank, something going on. That's the same thing in the spiritual realm. When you are clothed in Christ and you are giving less of him, less of you and more of him, you're recognized in the spiritual realm. Now, we do this as a consecration of our body and of our spirit man, right? Our body being consecrated as the temple, our spirit man as the priest, because we want to see his glory in us and in our church, in our lives. Because the glory of God, which is supposed to fill our temple, is his power, is his authority, is his strength, is his might. It is the fullness of him. That's why we consecrate, because we want his glory. We want his ability working in us. We want his ability. I'll never forget listening to the missionary that was, uh, was talking about being in South America, and he was trying to travel from town to town. And he got... He got cornered by people that were trying to kill him basically and they told him to get out of the car and he got out of the car and he was standing in the front he he visited Raymond when I was there and was telling this story this was his story standing in front of the car and the man said take off your clothes and he's like I'm not taking my clothes off I'm sorry I'm not going to do that I'm going to kill you he's pointing a gun at him and between here and here shot four shots from his gun and the bullets landed on the ground at the, at the missionary's feet he was at a point in time where he needed the glory of God to intervene because otherwise he would have been dead. 
See, there's going to come points and times in our life where we're going to run across situations that are beyond us. They're beyond us. And we are going to need that power and presence of God to protect us. I could go through all the stories in my life where the devil tried to kill me and all the accidents and things that have happened where I know that God's hand was protecting me through my wife's prayers, through my mom's prayers, right? Through consecration and giving your life to God. I know that for a long time, I knew little to nothing about the glory of God and was growing in this, right? I mean, I've listened to that first sermon that I preached and it was not pleasant. It was, it was not good. I was not, I was not very talented back then, right? But as you grow in Christ, you get these levels of lordship. But even back at the beginning, when I put on Christ, he saw what I was going to become, not what I was. And he looked at me and he gave me the jersey and the clothing based on what he wanted me to be, not where I was, because he expected me to mature into it. See, God looks at you after your spirit man, after the best part of you, looking each other from spirit to spirit, knowing what your spirit man can accomplish when you surrender your life to him. That's what consecration is. It's an act of worship, like temple, alt- like the, the, the altar in the temple. We consecrate things so that their purpose gives glory to God. We consecrate natural things, right? Cars. I have prayed over cars since the moment I got them. This car is going to operate the way it's supposed to, the way the manufacturer designed. This car is going to haul people to, to church, give glory to God. I would pray over cars. And I learned this from my mom and dad. Okay, so all the time, my dad and my mom would go buy a car together. And that was what they did. Mom would pray. She wanted to drive in the car. Dad would drive. Mom would get in the car. She would pray. She would listen to her spirit man on the inside. Is this a good car? Not a good car. Okay, and they did that for years and have never had problems with cars. Always had cars that last a long time. My dad was a road traveling salesman and he had another friend of his that had a Cadillac and he rode with him in this Cadillac and they're like glide. I mean, they glide. They, the Cadillac suspension system, they ride really nice. I mean, they're, and my dad wanted a Cadillac so bad, so bad. So one day there was a deal on a Cadillac. He didn't call mom, didn't ask mom. He went and bought the Cadillac and brought it home and surprised mom with Cadillac. That car broke down every other month, was the lemon of a car, was the bane of my father's existence. And my mom never said a word, never said a word, right? But my dad would often say, I will never again buy any vehicle without having your mom sitting at first. I have learned my lesson. I've learned my lesson. We pray over these cars. He got over into what he wanted. Also got out of agreement with the spouse, right? Remember we talked about prayer of agreement last week. See, this is what, these things are all the items in the temple, right? Our house. I pray over, we bought every house we've ever lived in. I've pled the blood of Jesus over the doorpost, like in the Old Testament from Passover. I will pray peace over my house. It is very important to me. My house will be a house of peace. Let me clarify. It's not a quiet house. (laughs) There's a difference between quiet and peaceful. It's quiet, yes, right. It is quiet when everyone's asleep. It's not necessarily a quiet house, but my house will be a house of peace, not of arguments and fighting and contention, right? Now, has there been arguments in our house? Of course, there's been arguments. There's arguments in every house. 
But I continually go back to you, Lord, this is going to be a house of peace. I want to be able to prophesy the future. I am asking, using my faith, this will be a house of peace. When tension comes, it's going to be resolved quickly. Right? But what is the house? Cinder blocks, wood, shingles, electrical wires. It's just stuff. It's just things. But they can be anointed. They can be consecrated. This house is going to be used for God and God's glory. What happens when you anoint and consecrate stuff? It doesn't wear out as fast. It lasts longer. It's protected. I've watched tornadoes jump over my mom's house, you know, where the devil comes in and tries to destroy what's consecrated. He can't touch it. Can't touch it. Do you consecrate things in your life to God and say, Lord, I want to use this for your kingdom. I want to use this for your purpose. I'm driving, you know, driving to church on Sunday morning going, I got four other seats open in this car. I can stop and pick people up. I can fill up this car and take people to church. Are you consecrating not only that, but your stuff to God? And then as the priest of your tabernacle, are you consecrating yourself every day? Not my will, but your will be done. I want to put on Christ like a shirt and like garment, like clothing. I'm putting on this anointing because the anointing's from him, not from us. That anointing is like that garment that comes on you. It's from him. Am I putting on Christ? But have I washed myself in the water of the word to be cleansed, to be able to put on Christ every day? Am I staying clean so that I'm worthy of wearing what he's given me? This is a process. But it's a process that happens every time. It's like when we, from going from being a youth pastor to going to become a pastor, it's a process. And it took, it took surrendering my will. Not my will, but your will be done. I want to do this. My flesh likes to do this. I like to hang out with these teenagers. This is fun. And I, we had a rhythm and a routine, and God's saying, I've got something else. And I had to surrender my will to his will. Now, is this something else just as fun as what was? Yes, and it's going to continue to be that way because what he has for us is always better. It's always better. But it's a matter of choosing to die to yourself and submit to him. Right? It's that picture. I love that. I've heard this word picture many times, right? But it's the picture of the dad who's, and I've seen this drawn in a cartoon, but the picture of the dad that has this massive giant teddy bear behind his back and he's got his little girl and he's asking for her old beat up ratty teddy bear, whatever, but he wants to give her something better, but he wants her to surrender what she has first. That's how God is. We think what we have is treasured and valuable, but he's got so much better for us. He's got something so much bigger for us if we would just consecrate our lives to him. Now, we're doing good. Let's keep going. So the second thing I want to talk about is our prayer of commitment. Oh, I skipped a few lines here. The consecrate, consecrate everything you have. I think a big thing that needs to be consecrated these days is our cell phones. We should all consecrate our cell phones. <laughs> is it being used to bring glory into the kingdom or is it being used to pull in distraction into your life and causing you problems and holding you back? right? Our money, our houses, our iPhones. Are we willing to put these blessings on the altar and to see what God has for us? We think they're good, right? We think this is the promise like Abraham and Isaac when God's saying, I just want to make sure they're not more important than I am. Is that cell phone more important than me? You know, is that car more important than me? Is that job that I blessed you with more important than me? See, a lot of people do that. 
thank you, God, I need this new job that's gonna, it's gonna pay so much more money, it's gonna be awesome. And God brings in the job and then all of a sudden they give themselves to their job and quit going to church. And he's like, hey, wait a minute, I, that blessing came for me. Doesn't mean that you, know, you should serve me less. You know a, guy, a job is from God when the job comes in to bring you more money with less responsibility to that job, but more ability to produce more kingdom. That's a job from God. It's gonna give you the ability to produce more kingdom that's where God, God wants us to be reaching people. That's the blessings that come from God. Now, the prayer of commitment is where I want to move to today, which is also the prayer of casting your cares on the Lord. A lot of people struggle with worry in their life, right? And I'm going to go over why. Now, in Matthew 6, 25, he says, therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky, don't they? They don't sow or reap or gather, but the heavenly father feeds them and takes care of them. Aren't you worth more than they are? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? What does worrying do? Worrying says that I can somehow through my worry, anxiety, and stress change something I'm, ta- I'm keeping it in my realm in my world casting your cares on the Lord says you need to change this I'm no longer going to worry about it right see I see this a lot in management I was in management several different jobs several different positions and you got different kinds of managers right and nobody likes the kind of manager that comes to you and says here is project A and hands it to you and you grab it but they never let go of Project A. And now you're both holding on to Project A, right? And you're trying to do something with Project A, but they keep pulling back a little bit and then checking on Project A and staring at you while you're doing anything to Project A because they never actually let go of Project A. They never actually gave it to you, right? And then there's this constant struggle back and forth. Instead of saying, here's this, I'm going to delegate it to you, and then I'm going to go off to do something else and come back and see, hey, how did that go? Did that grow? Did that, did that change? Did it whatever? But so many people do that with God. God, here's my, here's my problem. But I'm going to sit here and hold on to it with God and never really let him take it, never really let him have it, right? Never really let go of it. I love it. Brother Hagin used this example, and these young kids won't understand, but you had fly paper growing up, right? The yellow thing that pulled, you tie it up outside, and you pull it down, it was that swirly, sticky yellow fly paper, and it drew flies to it, and the flies would stick to it, Right? Yeah, well, as a 10-year-old boy, you want to stick your finger on it because this is what 10-year-old boys do. They want to touch everything or stick it in their mouth if they're little. You know, I'm going to eat or whatever. You ever put your finger on flypaper? Because now you're in a battle to get away from the flypaper because it is super sticky. And you get one finger off and now your other hand is attached because you used one hand to get the other hand off, right? And then you're like, this isn't working, so I'm going to use my foot. And now it's stuck to your foot. There's a great mental picture of people in worry. They try to give it to God, but it's stuck to them. They try to remove a hand to God, but it's stuck to them. This is the prayer of commitment. See, that process of casting your cares on the Lord, that process of handing it over to him, is kind of like the process, the reason I put these two together, it's kind of like the process of submission when you're submitting your will to God. It might take some time. I'm gonna cast my cares on the Lord, but how many times have you said, all right, go Lord, I've got this problem going on in my life, I'm gonna give this to you. And then two minutes later, your brain starts thinking about it. Have you really given it to him? Now you're starting to worry about it, 
right? What most people do is they, they allow that thought of worry to grow, and now they're back worrying about it, and they've taken it back from God. They've taken it back from God. See, I remember we were looking for a house when we moved down here, and we were also believing God for our house in Illinois to sell and for everything to fall into place, right? That was a process, a process of casting my cares on the Lord because I would say, okay, God, this is what we need. I'm putting this in your hands. Then five minutes later, I start thinking about it. And what do I have to do? Take every thought captive that comes against the glory of God. That's what the Bible says to do. Nope, I'm not gonna worry about this. I gave it to God. Thank you, God, that it's done. I'm gonna do something else. Then what happens five minutes later? Start thinking about it. Nope, I'm gonna take this thought. What's happening? This is a constant prayer of commitment, a constant prayer of casting your cares in the Lord. It's not just a one and done. Especially if you're a person that was, was raised to, to believe that worry is something you should do. Because that's a whole generational thing. Right? There, you go back generations and it's like there, was, there are some that are saying worry is a mother's right and responsibility. And if you're not a worrying mother, then you're not a good mom. I mean, that was like a generational thing that was taught people. But here's the thing. Would you rather your kids be in your hands or in God's hands? Because in other words, you're going to have to hold on to their hand, follow them around. I remember when Aiden and Brock were born, trying to understand and comprehend what Tiffany was going through because she was talking about when they were in the womb, I could completely protect them. They were, they were with me 24-7. I always knew where they were. Now that they're out of the womb, it's this, I want to try to protect them, but they're not that close anymore. And, and, and it's this constant, I want to protect them, but they're not here. I want to protect, you know, that's how worry works. You want to cast your cares on the Lord, guess what? The Lord encompasses them like in a womb, never leaves them, never forsakes them, never leaves them wanting. Psalms 91 says he'll guard them like under the, under the wing of an eagle up against his breast. That's what we should be doing is praying the Lord's protection over them because he can be with them 24-7. He'll never leave them or forsake them. That's our casting, our cares, of our, our worries on him. He can deal with it all the time. We're not designed to be that way. We're designed to give it to him. And he can do better than we ever could in the first place anyway. Now, can any of you add one moment of lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was adorned like any of these flowers of the field is what he's saying. And if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown away into the furnace tomorrow, won't he much more for you, O ye of little faith? So don't worry saying what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for the Gentiles, pay attention to this, the Gentiles, because this is Jesus talking to the Jewish people, they eagerly seek these things. What happens when you're eagerly seeking the blessing, the, the clothes, the food, whatever? If you're eagerly seeking that, he's not first. He's not Lord. That's become Lord. There are people where money has become Lord in their life. They wake up in the morning thinking about money. They do everything they can to try to get more money. It's all about money all day long. There are some people, there are some guys out there that women are Lord of their life. They wake up thinking about women. They spend their whole day thinking about women. They think nothing else but about women. Women are Lord of their life. Things, cars, possessions, 
Video games can be a Lord of your life. If you're waking up in the morning thinking about video games first instead of God, that video games become Lord of your life. Television, anything that exalts itself above God. But here's the interesting thing. The Gentiles eagerly seek these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. You know, God never denies the fact that you need money. Never denies the fact that you need clothes, food. He acknowledges them. God does not want you to go hungry. Doesn't want you to go naked. Right? Should I say it again? God doesn't want you to be naked. Don't come to church naked. <laughs> Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Pastor Paul. Right? He doesn't want you to be poor. He doesn't want you to be broke. He knows you need these things. Not want these things. He knows you need these things. Right? The world doesn't want you to walk around naked. You get arrested and thrown in jail. He knows you need them. Doesn't deny needs. But verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Right? Make the kingdom and God your Lord. And all these things will just be provided for you. What's Lord of your life. Casting your cares on the Lord is maintaining lordship and it's tied into consecration. It's saying, God, I can't fix this. I know you know I need these, these bills to be paid. I'm putting these bills in your hand and I'm paying attention to the kingdom. I'm seeking first the kingdom. Who do you want me to tell about Jesus' love? Who do you want me to tell about Jesus' love? I want to do something for the kingdom and you'll worry about the bills. You'll take care of all of this stuff. You know I need it anyway. I want to seek first the kingdom. That's what the prayer of consecration and commitment is. Seek first the kingdom of God. And then he says in verse 34, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry for itself. Each day has enough trouble on its own, right? So not only what you wear, what you eat, and how much money you have, the future. A lot of people worry about the future. What's gonna happen tomorrow? He said, don't worry about tomorrow. Seek today the kingdom of God. So, do we spend all of our time praying for just personal needs? If every time you spend praying and talking to God, you're just asking for your personal needs to be met, then you're missing the concept of what true, true real prayer is, which is communing with God, right? Are we willing to give our hey dudes to God? Now I say that because I like shoes. I have lots of different pairs of shoes and shirts and clothes, Right? Am I willing to put the Rolex on the altar, the nice car, the nice clothes, the money? Am I willing to put it on the altar and say, God, this is not Lord. I'm not waking up every day choosing to serve mammon. That's what that is. Things, money, the riches of this world. I'm choosing this day to serve you and seek first the kingdom. Are you willing to make him Lord? There's a reason we tithe. There's a reason we serve and give of our time at the church. There's a reason that we commit and get up in the morning and read our Bible first, right? Instead of getting up in the morning and turning on the news, seeing what the world has to say, right? Or getting on Facebook, seeing what the world has to say. Or playing video games, seeing what the world has to say. There's a reason why we put him first and give him first place in our life. Because worry will kill your prayer life. 
It will. It'll destroy your prayer life. Philippians 4, 6 says this. Do not worry about anything. It's pretty simple, right? It kind of lays it all out right there. And you could say, well, maybe about this. Nope, that's in anything. Well, what about this? Nope, that's in anything. But Pastor Paul, he didn't mean this. Nope, that's in anything, right? Anything covers it all. And there's no argument with this. Do not worry about anything. Nothing. There is nothing that deserves your worry. Nothing. I don't care how bad it is. I don't care how crazy it is. I don't care how much you think the world is falling apart. Nothing is worth worrying about. Nothing. But in everything, there's another all-inclusive word, right? In everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving. So what do you need to be communing with God and asking God and celebrating with God in? Everything. All of it. Right? Because with everything, spend time with God. Petition. Ask God. Thankfulness. Be thankful for everything. With thanksgiving, present your request to God. What happens when you choose not to worry, not to stress, not to have anxiety, but to commune with God, to ask God about things, to be thankful for what God's doing? The peace of God which surpasses all your understanding. Your mind won't be able to comprehend that. You'll be like, why am I not stressed about this? Why is this not bothering me? Normally in these situations, I get really freaked out, but all of a sudden I'm just calm. Why? Because you are communing with him, talking with him, and thankful for what he's doing in your life. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. It'll guard your heart and mind. Haley's got that written down, so she likes that. That's a good verse. But you know how the peace of God comes in to guard your heart and mind? You have to be in prayer, communing with God, right? Asking God and being thankful. There's the three steps to getting peace in your life. Peace in your prayer life. The Amplified says this, uh, or it's, uh, in verse eight, sorry. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, moral excellence, or praiseworthy, that's what you put your mind on. Think on these things. If you're wondering how to keep your mind from causing you problems, because your mind is where the worry is going to try to come back in. When you start to think about something that's worryful, worryful you say, nope, I'm going to think on something that's true. What do I know is true? The Word of God. The Bible is true and is written to me, so I'm going to think about the Word. I'm going to think about something that's honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, that's what I'm going to choose to focus on, not worry or doubt. Amplified says, think on, weigh and take account of things, fix your mind on it. Passion Translation says, fasten your thoughts on every glorious work of God, praising Him always. Fasten your thoughts, attach your thoughts to every glorious work. Every glorious work, right? When I'm struggling and thinking, man, how is this ever going to happen? You know what I do? I go back and think, start thanking God. You know, David did this in the Old Testament. He started praising God. Remember when David had committed a bunch of sins, right? Saw a naked lady on a rooftop, and the whole world fell apart. And all of a sudden, he ended up in a spiral trying to figure out how to get out of it, and God sent the prophet in. What did the prophet say? Don't you remember the lion and the bear? Don't you remember what God did for you? You killed a lion and a bear. I have never killed a lion or a bear right? 
You killed 10-foot-tall Goliath. Chopped his head off. You were the leader of armies. What is he doing? He's walking through the victories in his life, putting his brain back on what is true and pure and honorable and just and moral, focusing back on that. I go back to the doctor told us we would never have kids and that they needed to do a hysterectomy and take mom's ovaries. And God miraculously healed my wife and blessed me with four kids and soon to be grandkids. Thank you, Jesus. Right? But a man told us it would never happen. She'd never have kids. What does that do? That stirs faith. If God can, God will. But there's times in your life where you're struggling with worry and doubt and you're struggling trying to keep your mind on Christ. Start thinking about what he's already done in your life and it'll help deal with that worry. It'll help bring peace in because you're putting your mind on the right things. Putting your mind on the right things. Think about how big God is. You know how the first sign I can tell with somebody who's dealing with worry and stress? They try to tell me how big the devil is, how big the problem is. But you don't know how bad this is. You don't know how much money I owe, right? You don't know how sick they are. You don't know the situation that I'm in. What are they doing? They are nothing but focused on the problem. They have taken that molehill and turned it into a mountain. And the more they talk about it, the bigger it gets. The more they talk about it, the bigger it gets. We've all been in situations like that where we had something worked up as something really big in our head and we get there and it was nothing and we're like, why, was, why did I work this up, man? I had this, I was so freaked out about this. And we get there and it was nothing because we built it up. But here's what I'm here to tell you today. How big is your God? Is your God big enough where he said, speak to the mountain, cast it into the sea and it shall be done. Whatever things you ask for in prayer, believe that you receive and you shall have them right? That your faith is the substance of things that you hope for. How big is your God? My God is the God that created the heavens and the earth and the universe and spoke light into existence and created every animal. I was doing that earlier this week. I was, I was making a delivery to a job site. I was completely by myself. Everything was completely abandoned. I'm walking around listening to the frogs. They had those retaining ponds and stuff. Man, the frogs were just belting it out. It was beautiful, 70 degrees. It was like 10 o'clock at night. It was still 70. It was down in southern Florida. It was 85 that day. I was sweating. It was glorious. It wasn't cold at all. But man, them frogs were belting it out. And they were singing. And I was walking through, man, God, you thought how to make a frog, right? Still not quite sure why you made mosquitoes, but you did, right? But he thought of these things. He created these things. He creates the creator of the heaven. He, he created an earth that was exactly the right distance from the sun. A little bit too close, we'd all die. A little bit too far away, we'd all freeze. He knew the exact specifications. It says at any given moment, he knows, you know, my, okay, I've gone into our shower. I've pulled the little thing out the bottom and seen all the hair that comes from the ladies in our house and go, why is there so much hair in the shower drain, right? Because hairs have fallen out, right? But at any given time, he could tell you the exact number of hairs on your head, which changes from moment to moment. That's my God. That's how big my God is. I've seen miracles happen in my lifetime. I've seen blind people gain their sight back. I've seen deaf be able to hear. I know the power of God. I know what God can do. How big is your God? 
I guarantee you he's bigger than the problem that you're facing. He's bigger than what seems like an insurmountable thing. How big is your God? The more we make him Lord, the more we consecrate ourselves, the more of his glory we see and the more change we see affected in our life. Father, we thank you for this morning. Father, we, we are honored to be in your presence. We cannot even begin to comprehend your love for us. But you would send your son to die on a cross to redeem us from our sins, to save us from the filth that we were wallowing in. That love is incomprehensible at times. You cared about us so much that you laid out a place for us to live that reflects the splendor of your majesty, the vastness of the mountains, the depths of the oceans. This world screams out your glory, your creativity, your compassion, your kindness, your love. Everywhere I look, I see you, Father. Everywhere I look, I see your hand. Father, we choose to consecrate our lives, our stuff, our houses, our cell phones. We consecrate them to you, Father. We will let nothing become Lord of our life except for you. You are first. We honor you. We yield to you, Father. You've taught us to be faith people because you are a faith God. Father, we ask you for miracle signs and wonders to fill this place. Not for the glory of this church, not for the glory of the people here, Father, but so that everything that is done points back to you. We give you all the glory. We give you all the praise. It's not us, but you are a perfect God that has perfect gifts for his children. Father, let everything this place does glorify you. Let every step and action we take bring you glory. Whether it's five people in this building or 5,000 in a massive auditorium, Father, let it all bring you the glory that people will look over and say the power and presence of God is in that place. Father, we worship you. Let us be your hands and your feet to see your kingdom come and your will be done in this place and in this earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi, this is Pastor Paul, and I wanted to thank you personally for joining us today. Now, if you enjoyed today's podcast, there are a few things you can do that will help us out. Hit the subscribe button and rate and review our podcasts. If you would like to invest in helping us reach more people for Christ, head over to livingwordpensacola.com and click on the online giving button. Thanks again for joining us today. Now go out and tell somebody about the love of Jesus.